0: Yeah, for instance, uh, I mean, at some point, I was really keen about elastic materials because they could recover back fast. That's an ideal that is difficult to to reach, to have a material that is 100% elastic, which means it doesn't lose energy or dissipate energy when when you cycle it back and forth. The point is that if you look at the, the human body, you know, most of the tissues uh, are not elastic I mean maybe hardest to an extent elastic, but most of the tissues are actually viscoelastic so viscoelasticity means that you dissipate energy so it means that you don't have a perfect elastomer, it means that when you stretch it uh, it can go back to its original state but it takes time, there's a stress relaxation, there's a relaxation time going on but also you dissipate energy But that is something that you can use in the uh, automobile industry to kind of like in tires and wheels to kind of like dissipate energy, absorb shock as shock absorbers. For instance, our discs in our spine are actually viscoelastic and they can absorb a lot of shock. But I also love to, to, to see, you know, robots that are not just, you know, that soft robots, but they can even be... Uh, you know, metallic, but at the same time as an adaptable as soft robots. I don't know if it makes sense because the, the thing about soft robotics is that you have something that can go into holes, that can bend. But it is in the end, it's it is you know a soft polymer, so it's not strong. I mean, and uh, maybe the design has some flaws. Uh, what if you could do the same thing with uh, with metals, with metal-based robots, hard robots? Like, what if you can make them adaptable in the same way?
1: In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share an inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dwany, and this is Soft Robotics podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find science robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your questions and thoughts about the research. Thanks, Science Robotics, for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. So I find your work very fascinating, especially in designing bio-inspired material for medical application. And maybe the first question I'd like to ask you, the, the way of the designing bio-inspired material to mimic, for example, tissue engineering, uh, for human tissue, for example, if you get to some more the inspiration to design bio-inspired material, what's the process, what are the question, main question in the bioinspired Material design. I think you
0: know when you look at nature, there are really some fantastic curations in nature, which are both beautiful to look at, but also strong and multifunctional. Like look at, for instance, uh, spider silk, or you know, look at nacre uh, from uh, muscle shells, how strong they are. Look at bone tissue. Uh, and uh, the point is that we are trying, and we have tried to recapitulate uh, such materials um, in the laboratory, but we can we have never really realized to to have materials with the same properties as those found in nature. So that's why I think if we are looking into nature and we get inspired from what's already out there, we can do tremendous in terms of material engineering.
1: Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm curious skew in that way of looking to nature and trying to understand. For example, I found a lot of examples like designing tough and flexible material. There's many examples in nature about that or spider silk. What is a significant part in that maybe to figure out what is maybe the the main component to achieve such material like that? What is a significant part
0: here? I think there were, what I've noticed uh, just from, you know, Uh, studying how things are in nature is that it's important to have multi-level systems that are hierarchical uh, with different uh, levels but also different types of chemical bonds. For instance, the reason that bone is really tough is uh, a combination of its hard phase but also in its soft phase, which mainly consists of collagen, you have these hydrogen bonds that uh, uh, break uh, when bone is under pressure, and, and they act as sacrificial bonds, which increase the toughening uh, of bone. So also when you look at bone, you have both you know macroscale st- structures, as well as nanoscale structures in the form of uh, hydroxyapatite particles. The same is true for silk. You have like these rigid crystalline structures, then you have r- random coils in between, and then you have hydrogen bonds, uh, you know, connecting adjacent uh, silk uh, fi- fi- fibrin polymers. The same is true for nano cellulose, cellulose. They're also, you know, we have crystalline regions, but they are connected by hydrogen bonds, which are weak bonds. Uh, so there is like a nature. You have like this hierarchical, uh, you know, uh, makeup of materials that goes from macro scale to nano scale and you have different types of, you know, contributors to, to strength and toughness, such as could be colon bonds, it could be physical bonds, but also crystallinity plays an important role as well. So you have all of these factors that that kind of like, uh, you know, orchestra, these amazing properties that we, we see in nature. And that's also why it has been difficult for us, uh, you know, to us humans to, to recapitulate such uh, beautiful manifestation in, manifestations in the laboratory because they're really complex. I mean nature is complex in a beautiful way. That's what makes it makes it uh, unique.
1: hmm Maybe in that when you mentioned complex, what maybe for you still maybe hard to understand in that case before going to what may be missing features or maybe in the material we develop that maybe what's complex for you? Can you elaborate more on that? I
0: think the complexity is you know what ingredients to use in a simple way to get these, uh, you know, multitude of uh, interactions and, and multi-level structures? Well, how can you create bone uh, or create, you know, uh, you know, like NACRA or other soft materials in nature uh, in a simple way? Because what happens in nature is it just happens automatically. But if we are going to do this as humans without tapping into the same form of self-assembly, then we have to kind of like figure out how to make this complex architecture in combination with different chemical bonds and, and so forth. Uh, and how do we do that with, with simple components? So that has been challenging, but it it is being solved. I think we have solved some of those challenges uh, with some of the you know, chemistries we are working with where we just mix a few components and then we get this these high level multilevel, uh, multiple uh, chemical physical bonds at the same time. And in our case, we've noticed that, you know, when we mix uh, something like tannic acid with, with, the, with the oxidated uh, polymers, we can get these, you know, structures uh, and if we add nanomaterials to that uh, you know uh, recipe as well, then it gets even better. So basically, we are only playing with with one two or three components that we mix and then it spontaneously within one minute gives rise to these materials. And we discovered this, this is called the caragon. We discovered this that this actually by luck didn't plan it. It was something that happened by accident in the lab. So,
1: so maybe in that case, I want to ask you what may be still an answer to the question when it comes to bio-inspired design material. You mentioned that sometimes by luck, you can discover something in the lab, which is something very interesting. Maybe we'll talk about later, but maybe if you can give us the perspective, what may be still not an answer to the question, maybe in the bio-inspired design material. It may be a challenging question, avoiding, yeah.
0: I think like, you know, uh, with the emergence of uh, scanning electron microscopy and atomic force microscopy and scanning tunnel microscopy, we have been able to, to really study the molecular and, and uh, atomic, you know, structures and interactions on those labels in these materials. So I think we, I wouldn't say fully because that's not, the, uh, there's always a, a new insight, a new publication that gives new insight from it, but I think we understand to a large extent why it is as it is in nature. Uh, I think on the other hand, you know, there's still space for improvements, for instance, I would love to see something that you can make for one euro, uh, but uh, and at the same time, it's, it's stronger than, than steel, uh, and it's, you know, scalable, and at the same time, it's also multifunctional, so it's not just strong, but it's also maybe conductive or, or something else, a self healing. And uh, so there's still, you know, space for improvement. I mean, even when we talk about what we have in our hands right now, for instance, we do have, uh, you know, knowledge of how to make uh, spider silk into, you know, materials that are tougher than Kevlar, stronger than steel, uh, but they're not scalable. They cannot be scaled up. You're not seeing them in our the living rooms. So I would really, you know, wish to, to see all of this talk and, and these, you know, Science Nature papers about these materials. I would love to see that actually in our living rooms, that we have spider silk in our automotive, automobile cars, or uh, you know, in our consumer uh, products. But we still rely on steel, plastic, and and woods, basically, and and concrete and 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 cement uh, when it comes to materials. And those are materials that have been around since. Hundreds of years. I mean, uh, uh, concrete was around during the Roman era, the Roman Empire. But nothing amazing has happened, which could happen if we really know how to harness and scale up these, you know, these ideas that, that right now are in, in laboratories or in the head of of sciences. Uh, so I still believe that there's a lot of stuff to do, and it really goes back to making the materials even tougher, cheaper, multifunctional, but also using uh, methodologies and, and chemical processes that are scalable and cheap. And I think that, that is lacking right now.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Maybe I want to ask you in that case, if you push more here, what do you think maybe should be done here? Or what does it take to that? We can you all you mentioned, uh, based on the last sentence you mentioned here, what is actually maybe missing here? So maybe the way of design, maybe something you don't agree with, eh, because you mentioned yeah, the scaling for a problem, but what's something maybe if, if you, maybe something, this is not the right way to go so that we can achieve these characteristic.
0: I think, you know, uh, the idea of using spider silk uh, is, is really beautiful. And I think we should continue with that. Uh, but at the same time, I would like to encourage people to also use, you know, materials that are already out there and that are accessible, such as silk from um, uh, butterfly cocoons, uh, such as you know cellulose, nanocellulose. Uh, then there are other of types of polymer, biopolymers, chitosan, keratin. I can continue. Uh, instead of you know trying to reinvent something uh, in the lab from scratch, try to see what's already out there and try to see if you can make improvements on that in a, with a new angle, because that will give you something that is scalable and also something that is easier to use in the human body. The problem is that if you've invent uh, a polymer from scratch then, you know, it has to go through all of this, uh, all of these uh, clinical trials and FDA approvals, and it's not something you will see be used in, in human beings uh, until after several decades, maybe. So why not try to see, you know, how you can use calcium certificates to recapitulate the string of, of NACRA, how you can use, you know, Different forms of silk to recapitulate the strength of, you know, spider silk or the strength of, uh, um, yeah, silk. Uh, how to use that even in, uh, you know, how to use that even other places than just textiles. Like, like can we, for instance, find a way to make a silk composite uh, that we can use as a replacement for steel? Uh, I mean, I think you know, uh, steel, uh, making steel, and you know it entails a lot of um, costs not just not, ju- not just in terms of uh the metals that you use to make steel and maybe even those metals when they no longer be on earth because we're using a lot of them but also in terms of pollution and in terms of co2 there's a lot of co2 going into steel production uh it's not a clean you know uh, procedure to to get steel uh is there like any way we can you know, well, what if we maybe mix uh, mix it with, with some polymers? So you have like a, a composite that is uh, a natural polymer like silk and, and some metals. That is challenging because, you know, how do you combine two such different materials without getting inhomogeneities and without getting phase separation? But if you could do that, you could maybe get something that is more durable or something that is uh, novel and new at the same time, also scalable. So the question is just get a village. I would just love to see some of these, uh, you know, ideas and, and, and some of these results that are every year published uh, in, uh, in different journals. I would love to see them actually benefit humankind, which I feel like we haven't seen the full potential there yet.
1: So maybe I want to ask you again about the Bio design, because, for example, let's pick for example, toughness. There's maybe two ways, if you can maybe elaborate more, maybe using different material, like what we see, s- seashell, um, our biomefish. there's many examples, they have this multi-material to achieve higher toughness to, and, and delay damage or, um, or make it dissipate the damage, for example. And the other way, using material. When you think about the design approach, achieving whatever characteristic for toughness, flexibility, whatever, is it you're looking for only the material part or also architecture, how you design the shape with this material?
0: I think that is also a beautiful area of science is it's the design, because, I mean, there are people who uh, have shown that materials that have porosities with the certain uh, specific designs that, that resembles those in nature, they actually give you really incredible material softness But there are also some studies that have shown that if you, for instance, if you have like a a material that is flexible and and you cut it with a scissor, uh, so you have like gaps between, uh, then you can also increase uh, the stretchability and the toughness. So all of this are, you know, designs, uh, but also, I mean, the way, you know, uh, you combine the material property with the architectural design can also give you different, you know, mechanical properties for, for different applications, uh, how you connect the struts and how, you know, many cross-links you have at, at different borders and in such designs. Uh, and and this is, then we're talking more architecture and civil engineering. And I think it's really beautiful when you can combine basic chemistry, basic material research with, 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 uh, with design, the knowledge of how to design, uh, you know, efficient uh, materials both in terms of uh, energy, but also because you have to you know I mean it requires energy and, and, and materials to, to develop you know uh, a product, how to do it all in an efficient way. And then I think what combines and connects it's all is really 3D printing. There are a lot of studies where you use 3D printing uh, where you program a printer to, to print these architectures uh, from scratch. So you combine, you know, additive manufacturing with uh, design engineering, with material engineering, and then that also gives some beautiful results. That's also important. Yeah, you're right about that.
1: So for your perspective, do you still think maybe the way to go is more the architecture or the material part when it comes to achieving something resembling nature?
0: I think architecture is, is is not only important on the macro scale, but also important on the nano and the, and the micro scale. Uh, I mean, that's why Boone is is tough. It's not because it consists of different components; it's because of how those components are assembled into unique architectures. Uh, and we have the knowledge right now. We have the capacity, or at least we are getting there, to to use various microfabrication processes to, to encapsulate these unique micro architectures that we see in nature and with 3D printing we can also even you know uh, print things easily in, in, in defined shapes uh, with defined designs that could enable them to be stronger in, in different applications or different circumstances
1: yeah and also I was mentioning about the material level I don't know also if there's something like two different conflicting properties in the material level without structure is it something it was very challenging as a trade-off to combine two different properties in material level
0: that is really challenging especially if you're to do it in a, in a cheap way and we have actually in my opinion, not only me but also others in the field, my colleagues we have managed to to do that where we either use uh, these multiple Uh, bonds with varying strength, or we use nanomaterials to get materials with not just two properties but with like five, six different properties. For instance, the keragom is adhesive to tissues, it's it's adhesive to polymers, metals, it's conductive, it can conduct heat, it can conduct electricity, it's self-healing, it's printable, it can work as a strain sensor, it can work as a pH sensor, it can do all of that at the same time. Uh, And the reason that is unique and it has created such a frenzy in the field is because it's typically impossible to, to, to do such things and even if it happens it requires a lot of complexity and it requires you know that you use expensive procedures and in the end the product will be super expensive but we can do this for one kilo we can make it for like one dollar right now of caragon. Uh, so this is again, you know, what I said in the beginning that there are a lot of cool stuff going on, but if you cannot scale it up, then it's just something that is in your head. Uh, but we need to also be able to scale up the ideas and, and, and the visions we have and, and the the stuff we, we we encounter or the experiments that succeed in the laboratory. We need to kind of like, uh, you know, enable those to go all the way and scale up so, so it can reach uh, the broader populace. And, and this is where we are really trying uh, hard to, to, to do that, actually, where we also, I guess, in our group, we are really strong there.
1: Mm-hmm. That's an important point. So I want to go for that embedded intelligence in the material level. You already work on by biosensors. If you can tell more about the way you view achieving intelligence in the material level, so how do you view that?
0: So, I mean, firstly, as I said, you know, it's important to have these multiple chemistries, these multiple bonds, and these hierarchical structures—that's the material side. You need that if you want to have something multifunctional in terms of you know the material itself, like if it's self feeding or adhesive, you need to have those uh, you know uh, ingredients uh, in the about the, the sensing. I mean, uh, that is this is where the nanomaterials are really amazing because uh, not only they're really easy to incorporate in composites, but they can also bring in, uh, you know, improve electricity, sorry, improve uh, conductance, electrical conductance, and also improve heat conductance. And you can even, you know, use them uh, to facilitate, uh, you know, electrochemical uh, uh, measurements or electrochemistry, uh, where you use that to to sense in terms of having, for instance, an um, antibody that recognizes an anti gene on a biomarker that would facilitate an electron transfer to these nanomaterials and that would increase the, the conductivity, but you'd need to have the nanomaterial there to, to do it in a, in a proper way. Uh, so so what I would say is that you can have a box which is providing multiple uh, chemistries and multiple bonds. That box would, would, would give you you know a lot of, uh, cool mechanical and a lot of cool material properties if you just add nanomaterials to that uh, then you can get the, the the multifunctional sensing at the same time so it's not really rocket science it's actually simple. Uh, so that's why you know it's incredible that we are just realizing this now but I mean at the same time you know the Incas they didn't invent the wheel uh, even though it was really simple they never did that so sometimes Things that are really simple can still be really hard to invent. But if you do that, you can really make a revolution. Like with the wheel. Imagine if we didn't maybe. have imagine if we didn't have wheels, and then our world would be really crazy.
1: Yeah. So, maybe a quick question here: What makes a good sensor design? You mentioned that maybe the recipe sounds easy, but what makes, at the end of the day, good sensor design? There's any other factor do you think contributes in achieving good sensor design? In material level?
0: Um, the first on what you want to sense. If you're talking about uh, strain sensing, which we do a lot, then uh, the gauge factor uh, is important. The gauge factor tells you how much the resist- resistance changes when you deform uh, or when you strain the material. So basically, your strain sensor works in a simple way where uh, strain or material deformation induces uh, increase in resistance and uh, the relation between those two are called a gorge factor. So if you have a large, large gauge factor, then you have a linear, uh, sensitive strain sensor. But, uh, you know, if you have a large gauge factor, that is also not good because that limits how much you can stretch the material without losing uh you know um, conductance and transport of electrical signals so this is the trade-offs that you have to consider uh, between you know uh, electrical durability during stretching and straining and uh, strain sensing so those two are, are trade-offs you need to kind of like fine tune those and find a, a borderline where you have the perfect uh, properties if you're talking about uh, pH sensing, uh, That also, again, in our case, goes back to uh, the fact that we have ionic conductors and the pH, uh, you know, the pH value depends, for instance, on on, on ions uh, in the solution. So you can increase the availability of conductive ions by decreasing or, or increasing the pH value. And thereby, you can actually also sense those. And the important factors to consider there is that we're talking about materials that are operating at you know in a liquid environment uh, which also can make them less stable in a dry environment because if they dry out then you lose the ionic connectivity so you have to have a trade-off there as well in terms of you know how sensitive do i want this to be the more liquid you have the more easier it is to, to measure these things uh but at the same time the more liquid you have then you can compromise the stability in dry environment uh and if you're talking about biosensing then it's a more complex story actually biosensing because there are a lot of you know ways of doing biosensing you can use aptamers you can use you know where you recognize uh dna you can use uh, for instance antibodies that recognizes antigens but the key there is really the, the transport of electrons that happens and when you have these recognition schemes going on where the electrons then are transported to a collecting electrode which could be a nanomaterial that collects it and then distribute it, distributes it uh, and that's typically really complex and that's also why i would say that what was her name elizabeth holmes failed <laughs> because she was claiming that she could do like I don't know, like 100 uh, markers uh, from nanoliter uh, volume of blood. I mean, it is impossible to do that. Uh, and that is really, you know, that is a bit more complex than than strain sensing, pH sensing. Uh, then we also have, you know, uh, gas sensing or temperature sensing or uh, humidity sensing. So humidity sensing also again that relates to the fact that the more liquid you have uh, in 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 a, in an ionic conductor the, uh, the better it conducts, but then there's a trade-off again between stability in dry environments and the ionic conductivity and the sensitivity. Uh, so yeah, there are a lot of you know things to consider here.
1: Yeah. Maybe on the you if we consider different sensing in one material. What are challenge to combine, like, for example, temperature and humidity, well, sorry, temperature and strain, whatever, two different sensing uh, in the same time?
0: Uh, for instance, let's say the pH value uh, changes between 7 and 8, but the temperature changes are between 0 and 1, and then, I don't know, like the uh, the strain and, uh, sensing is between uh, two and three, then you can differentiate them in different, you know, ranges, and then you can collect the data at the same time. Actually, uh, if that is possible, so the key there is then to make a material where you put these different sensings into different ranges, and you can do that by fine tuning, you know, different components by fine tuning the amount of liquid there. Um, so, the, so the the print operating principle is the same basically, is the conductance of of ions uh, but if they do that at different uh, in different dynamic ranges then you can distinguish them from from one another uh, so it's pretty simple uh that part uh but it's a bit more challenging to at the same time to kind of like you know or even uh, alone to 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 be able to to sense uh biomarkers that is a bit more challenging uh that is a bit more that is not as simple
1: Mm-hmm. You're also working on in designing electric and magnetic, uh, if I understood, for bifabrication, this kind of classification. What's different between electric and magnetic and micro bifabrication? Do you think uh, the way the, um, the maybe the design of fabrication, which one may be stel- challenging? Or maybe if we speak about simplifying the design, and yeah, I don't know if you can have a comparative.
0: I mean, when we're talking soft polymers, you know, you can always fine tune those, uh, you know, properties by fine tuning the amount of fillers, nanofillers. If you use nanofillers that are magnetic, uh, you can obviously increase the magnetic properties. People have tried to. For instance, if you put magnetic uh, uh, iron particles in a liquid, then the liquid becomes magnetic, and then you can control it with a with a, with a magnet. So there are a lot of cool videos of that in uh, in YouTube, and this is something you can do in in, in high school uh, physics uh, classes. And I think they're doing that. Uh, but to do that with a polymer is a bit more challenging. You know, how do we have a homogeneous distribution? How do we avoid phase separation? Uh, so, but I think the key is to, to find a nanomaterial that is either electric or magnetic, and uh, knowing how to incorporate it in 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 a, in a polymer without getting you know uh, uh, the formation of aggregations or without getting heterogeneous distribution of the nanomaterials.
1: Mm-hmm. Going back when you mentioned beginning, sometimes we have luck in in, in maybe something work and it wasn't expected. I want to ask you if there's something maybe was counterintuitive to the way of thinking and it was like, this is not really um, expected or maybe counterintuitive because it sometimes it happens when we do something maybe bad luck, intuition and maybe something was counterintuitive as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what what, what you are aiming at. I, I mean, I think i you know, I don't know, some of the best inventions were just, they just came out of the blue, I think. Uh, I mean, in our laboratory, we have systems that we designed on the forehand and it worked out. And we have systems that we just discovered by luck. (laughs) And those systems that we designed on the forehand, I mean, they can to some extent recapitulate the properties we aimed after. But you can you can never if you know go beyond that. You can never go beyond what is in, in your head. If you do things according to plan, you get what you plan at the best. But if you discover something by by luck, you can get something that goes beyond what your imagination. Is, right. I mean, so if you have something on paper, you wanna recapitulate that. At the best scenario, you get what you have on paper. But you can never get something unexpected uh, or something that really vows the world or the field. For instance, graphene. That was discovered by, by luck, right? They took, you know, what was it? They had this uh, tape that they removed on, the, on Nika and then, then for some strange reason, I don't know exactly why, discovered graphene. That was that was luck. I mean, but graphite is perhaps one of the, among some of the most, you know, amazing material discoveries uh, in, uh, in our time, I would say. But that was luck. I mean, sometimes, you know, you discover things by by luck or by trial and error. Like, for instance, steel, you know, how did it discover that? I don't know. You know, who came up with that? Was it something to plan or something that just happened?
1: If you can tell more about because you mentioned beginning work in the lab, sometimes the scaling up is a challenge. And can you tell us more about the perspective that from academic and the lab, because I think that's a question that was interesting, asked by someone. Uh, where are the maybe the top-notch material are developed? Is it in academia or industry? And even in aerospace, they asking this question, where the maybe advanced material could be developed.
0: If you look at Dupont, I mean, they've really managed to, that's a, that's a, a company that, that uh, you know focuses on, on polymers. Uh, And they have managed to develop some pretty cool stuff, like Kevlar, for instance, this is something they have developed. Uh, So so cool stuff and great inventions also happen in in companies. Uh, But those are big companies, so they have the resources, they have the R&D units to do so, right? But if you look at, uh, you know, small-sized companies or medium-sized companies, they don't have the resources to do R&D because R&D requires a lot of times that you fail. And, you know, engineers are expensive. So if they fail one time in a small company or a medium-sized company, then they go bankrupt. Whereas they have that in their budget in the, in the bigger companies. So big inventions do come as well in, in these big companies. Uh, but I would say groundbreaking steps, mostly happens in the laboratory such as the invention of carbon nanotubes or the invention of graphene those i will say happens somewhere in a physics lab somewhere where people they do some cool stuff or they get lucky or they are geniuses uh, but still there are a lot of innovation also going on in the concrete industry inside the companies or in the steel industry inside the companies and also in companies like Dupont, where they have so many cool polymers that they have you know uh, brought to the, the, into the real world, uh, one of them is capable, which is really cool.
1: Mm-hmm. So since it goes on the end, I have a big question. Maybe when you look to evolution, nature was kind of material developed. What do you think maybe still maybe features maybe in material science you still wish to be achieved? and maybe it was very inspiring to you and we still wouldn't have this feature.
0: I would love to, you know, one day to have a material, to see a material like uh, that is metal, but at the same time, it's self-healing and it's at the same time, it's polymeric and at the same time, it can also flow and be a simple. uh, So it's dynamic. So kind of like adaptable metal. Uh, metals are right now monofunctional and they have great properties uh, they can sometimes both conduct and, and be mechanically strong at the same time but they're not adaptable or dynamic whereas soft materials like hydrogels and, and some soft polymers are adaptable or you're trying to make them adaptable but you could not use them in, in cars or as in consumer products or you know, in places where we see them, they're more used in places that uh, are far away from us or in in a smaller scale than we're used to. Uh, So that would be cool. Like if we could kind of like get these self feeling, adaptable, dynamic um, metals that we can use and yeah, in places like in the automobile industry or in the space industry. And so forth, or any in robotics industry.
1: Yeah, I was also curious to ask you: if there is anything maybe was viewed in a negative way. For example, we speak about buckling, in another episode. And I think I want to ask you: do you think there is something maybe was viewed a negative feature, and maybe later on it could be transformed in a positive way instead of viewing it in a negative way?
0: Yeah. For instance, uh, I mean, at some point I was really keen about. Elastic materials because they could recover back fast, uh, and that's an ideal that is difficult to to reach. To have a material that is 100% elastic, which means it it doesn't lose energy or dissipate energy when 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 you cycle it back and forth. But the the point is that if you look at the the human body, you know most of the tissues. are not elastic, I mean, maybe hardest to an extent really elastic, but most of the tissues are actually viscoelastic. So viscoelasticity means that you dissipate energy. So it means it, you don't have a perfect elastomer. It means that when you stretch it, uh, it can go back to its original state, but it takes time. There's a stress relaxation, there's a relaxation time going on, but also you dissipate energy. But that is something that you can use in the uh, automobile industry to kind of like, in tires and in wheels to kind of like dissipate energy, absorb shock As shock absorbers. For instance, our discs in our spine are actually viscoelastic and they can absorb a lot of shock. Uh, so, you know, for many people, it might be that it's an undesirable thing to have a non-perfect el- elastic polymer or a non-perfect elastomer, but Having something that is viscoelastic and not just elastic can also be advantageous.
1: So maybe for a question, I want to ask you what would be your vision about what you want to do? You mentioned at the beginning you want to develop something really beneficial to people and that's your goal. If you're going to tell about your vision, what kind of something you you want to achieve when it comes to what you try to do now.
0: To kind of like, you know, be able to create something synthetic that can perfectly meld with the human body and enable us to monitor the human body, but also to make it better and stimulate it if needed, if you have a disease, to deliver drugs or stimulate it electrically. Uh, But I also love to to, to see, you know, robots that are not just, you know, that soft robots, but they can even be, uh, you know, metallic, but at the same time as an adaptable as soft robots. I don't know if it makes sense because the thing about soft robotics is that you have something that can go into holes, and can bend, but it is in the end, it's, it is, you know, a soft polymer. So it's not strong. I mean, and there maybe the design has some flaws. Uh, what if you could do the same thing with, uh, with metal, with metal based robots, hard robots, like what if you can make them adaptable in the same way? Uh, so I think that that is really challenging and that requires some really, you know, that will require some uh, some new inventions. That will require some breakthroughs in the field.
1: I don't know if you ha- have a moment of doubt when you do the what your ideas or research. Do you have a moment of doubt?
0: Yeah, I, mean, I always doubt myself. If you don't doubt yourself, you're not critical about what you're doing. You have to be critical when you're a scientist. You have to be critical every time about the data you see and, uh, you know... The plans you make and the experimental plans you make, you have to be critical about that. But I don't have doubt about the vision. I know that the visions will happen, <laughs> but you have to have that belief in, in your visions. So, but you have to every day doubt what you're doing, but you have to keep the vision there and believe in it. Uh, so, that I do. I believe in, in, in what I'm saying. I believe we can do it. I think we can do it within one decade or so. But we always constantly doubt myself and my ideas. Uh, but that's the ideas, not the visions.
1: Mm -hmm. And lastly, if there is an advice was given to you and was a life changing, maybe in the career or life and stick to your mind every day, advice was given to you. Uh,
0: I think, you know, whatever you do, don't care about the publications or citations or money or all of that. Do something you like and then have a vision.